and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, share from God's Word once again. <clears throat> and that was uh, well read by Mackenzie. Thank you for that. In fact, the uh, the video that we uh, saw earlier on probably summed it all up, didn't it? So that was very good. We've looked at Jesus' prayer life, the times he prayed and the people he prayed for. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer and the communication with his father was something different. He prayed during teaching and the people got to see how he communicated with God. Jesus had an intimacy with the father that was different and the disciples noticed this. Raph reminded us of the people he prayed for. The disciples were with him when he prayed for himself, for them and for all believers. Last week we heard from Evan how Jesus prayed for his ministry and those that were involved with him. And at the beginning of this little prayer section in this Christ-likeness series, we were reminded by Graham that the underlying thing about Jesus' prayers were that he prayed before, during and at times after significant events. But how do we pray? And what do we pray for? And what is our motive I must confess that a lot of time uh, when I spend quiet time in prayer, my prayer seems to be a long list of things to ask God to, if you could help people, oh, sorry, help people you know, with this or help people with that or help myself, etc. And, you know, when we get together in, in our big fellowship groups to pray, it seems to be the same thing, doesn't it? We come together we come to God and we give him a long list of things. Can you help people with this? Can you help people with that? <clears throat> but the first half of Matthew chapter 6 covers what Jesus called the acts of righteousness. He says that in verse 1. These acts of righteousness were giving, praying and fasting and were central elements to the Jewish religion and assumed to be valid for Jesus' disciples. You see, the issue for Jesus was not whether one does them or when, but the motivation for doing them, the how and the why. One commentary puts it like this. The the hypocrite is motivated by pride, the desire to be above others. Example, the prayer that is given that sounds good to those around him, he appears to be serving God, but he's serving his own selfish ambition. As a follower of Jesus, we need to be moved by our love for God and for others. Verse 5 and 18 of this chapter 6 talks about doing these acts of righteousness in secret, not blowing our own trumpet. You know, it is important to please God and do what God wants us to do with the gifts he has given us not to do them to impress others. My wife sometimes says to me, how come you seem to always be doing the barbecue at the church? Are you trying to impress people? Well, let me tell you what my answer to her is, well, God has given me a gift to burn sausages on a hot plate. 
So if people can get impressed with that, that's fine. Um, it's the same at work. Um, when I'm in the lab, we have a test versus time and I, I don't like falling behind. I seem to want to do the same as at least what everyone else does, but, of course, they're younger. But that's pride. And, uh, of course, the answer to pride and show-off is solitude. It, the, an, the answer to that is, in verse 6, it says, You. And that you is just you and God the Father. The Father's reward to those who seek his approval is a deeper communion with himself, a one-on-one with God, which gives you a greater intimacy. This is what Christ-likeness is. You know, we've all gotten together with someone over a cup of tea or coffee where you can talk about intimate things. It's great value isn't in that, isn't it? How much more is it when we pray with God? In verse 7, Jesus says, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. The dictionary defines babbling, talk rapidly and continuously in a foolish and excited and incomprehensible way. You see, the difference between babble and persistence here is related to the person praying. The pagan babbles because he thinks to himself, Have I found the right God? And does God know what I want or what I need? But as disciples, we address the one and true God. The omniscient God already knows what you need. Jesus tells us that in verse 8. You see, the prayer is answered when there's no contradiction in the Father's knowing and the disciple asking. And prayer makes us depend on God and we need to be grateful to him. The Lord's Prayer, as this is commonly called, is clear and concise. In Philip Yancey's book, Prayer, he says this, Jesus taught a model prayer that otherwise would give few rules. His teaching reduces it down to three principles. Keep it honest. Keep it simple. Keep it up. Do I press the big arrow here, uh, Andrew? Is it just a big arrow? Yes, there it is. Okay, thank you. Jesus pressed home that we come as beloved children to a Father who loves us and cares about our lives. We're going to look over the Lord's Prayer to see what Jesus teaches us now. Before we do, though, we need to realise this that it's an example of a format that we can use. Repetition of the exact prayer doesn't really benefit us in any way. In fact, Jesus himself discourages repetition. Repetitive prayer was used by the pagans thinking that saying many words over and over again that the gods with a little g would hear them. Their words would pass through their mouth, but not through their hearts. We don't gain anything with God by praying in repetition. God wants to hear from our heart, not our head.
that going? No, that's been the other way. Oh, there it is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed means made holy, consecrated, greatly revered and honoured. God is already holy, so the prayer is not that God be made holy, but that he be regarded as holy. In Leviticus 11, chapter 11 and verse 44, it says, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. It's recognising God the Father for who he is. He is a holy God and for what he has done, he sanctifies us and makes us holy. By his saving and judging acts through history, he has shown himself to be holy. And we also need to recognise him as the creator and to praise his greatness in all creation in our daily life. Philip Yancey puts it this way, this is slightly paraphrased. He says, help me to recognise you in the splendour of nature, in the odd mix of people I meet, and in the and in the still voice that calls me to be like you. Sanctify what comes my way, consciously referring it to you, honouring your perfection and your holiness, and seeking to be more like you. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not in a sense to come into existence because the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus tells us in Luke, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is present in the person where Jesus is king. But we pray that it will come more and more completely until its full and final consummation. This is the whole purpose why Jesus came. He wanted his disciples to know and he wants us to know the destiny of humankind. You see, sin, evil, suffering was never never part of God's intention for us. No, God's kingdom is that which brings love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness, etc. And if we truly want to be like Christ, we must show and display this in our life and those we come in contact with. Just recently, um, I went to the supermarket with my daughter and I was waiting in the car for her and she walked by a beggar who was sitting outside and I noticed that she handed him a savoury roll with a can of drink. And I said to her, I said, that was very nice of you to do that. Her response was, it was the least I could do. Sometimes actions speak louder than words, don't they? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is clearly seen in the words and the actions of Jesus. And he wants us to be like him. He always stood for life, not death, for hope, not despair, for freedom, not bondage. Jesus lived out heaven's will on earth and our desire should be to be likewise.
Give us this day our daily bread. Our guarantee is only for today. We don't know if tomorrow comes. This is putting our trust in God, in the hands of God, trusting him for what we need each day. Now, it's not just food, but it may be for protection, for wisdom, for help in difficult circumstances, help with grief and sadness and suffering, with friendships and relationships and holy living. In all these things, we need him in our lives. Pray that he will sustain us daily and that we will submit all our daily needs to him who is able. Jesus sustained the poor and the needy. He wants us to be responsive to those in need and provide for those going through tough times. Just as we've recently had opportunity to bring some support to those who were affected by the fires. Jesus showed compassion and his prayer is to teach us to show compassion to others. You know, I don't know about you, but we love to store things, don't we? In Exodus 16, chapter 16 and verse 4, when God rained down bread from heaven for the people of Israel, the instruction was to gather enough manna for that day. Does that sound familiar? Give us this day our daily bread. It seems like it. Go out each day and gather enough for that bread. And if you remember, those that gathered more, the manna went off or it went mouldy or had maggots in it or whatever. It may be the background for Jesus' model petition here, but he tests us to put our trust in him. If we want to be more like Christ, we need to put our trust in him. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus here is reminding us of our position before God, a debtor, knowing that we can never buy our way into God's favour. The Oxford Dictionary says that a debtor is one who owes money or an obligation or duty to someone else. Here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, the word used is debt. Luke uses the word sins. Um, I looked up a few references and the meaning of debt is the same as sins. You see, while we seek forgiveness for our sins, we must realise that Jesus asks us to to forgive those who have sinned against us. This is where a lot of us get stuck. Many of us are reluctant to forgive. We expect forgiveness, but we refuse to forgive. Forgiveness in others is essential in our Christian walk because to be totally forgiven, one must totally forgive. This is a very difficult thing to do at times, but it is important to Jesus because he points it out for the Jews in Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother who has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. He's telling them that even if they're right there at the altar, in the temple, about to put the gift down, leave it there. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Make that right first before you do anything else. 
that's how important it is that's how important forgiveness is to Jesus and that's how important it should be to us we can't be like little Johnny who's been misbehaving and was sent to his room after a while he came out and informed his mother that he'd thought it over and he said that I he said a prayer fine his mother was pleased if you ask God to help you not to misbehave he will forgive you oh no I didn't ask him to help me not not misbehave said Johnny I asked him to help you put up with me (laughs) if we want to be more like Christ we need to forgive others before we can be forgiven Jesus emphasises this in the parable of the unmerciful servant after Peter asks how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me up to seven times Jesus' answer was 77 times and if you read the fine notes it actually says 70 times 7 well I reckon the real translation is times without number why? because if we count the number of times that God forgives us it would exceed the 70 times 7 and that might be just in one day Jesus wants us to do what Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 when he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus doesn't want us to slide mindlessly towards evil during our day he wants us to ask that he alert us to the temptations and help us strongly resist them he reminds us that we can call on God to protect us and steer us away from our temptations and to understand that only he is able to deliver us from the evil one Jesus experienced temptation he spent 40 days in the desert and what was his defence against, against Satan? It was the scriptures. He is reminding us that we too can rely on scripture and depend on him. James tells us, No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And what happens next? James continues, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James is clearly saying that it is not God that is the tempter, but our own evil desires. I think to be more like Christ in this area, it is essential to fill our minds and thoughts with the word of God. At Bible college, it seemed that I talked, breathed and ate words from the scripture the studies were such that a good percentage of my time was spent in God's word it was the best two years of my life it's beneficial to spend time in God's word and if we want to be more like Christ that's what we need to do so in concluding how do we summarise the value of this prayer 
and how to pray. Firstly, it is a model prayer. This was, the, this was Jesus' answer to the question asked by his disciples who wanted to know how to pray. Secondly, it is an outline of how we should structure our prayer, putting our priority on God's kingdom, not ours. The Bible is full of prayers. Read through them and see how they are structured and what is prayed for. The book of Psalms offers us a practical guide in how to pray. John Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Since there is no emotion, anyone will not experience fear, anger, sorrow, love, praise, gratitude, doubt, suffering, joy, repentance, etc., etc. They cover every human experience. And you can use the words from the Psalms in your own prayers. Most of Paul's letters to the various churches have prayers. Prayers for increased love and unity, for mature behaviour, for strength, for obedience, for thanksgiving and encouragement. The Apostle Paul showed his care and concern for others above himself. Do we have that same care and concern for the spiritual welfare of our family and friends or do we just pray for their physical and financial needs? And then there are some great prayers in the Old Testament which we don't have time to go through today. Another way to improve our prayers is to listen to those who have years of experience in praying. They say, if you want to be great at something, you find someone who is great at it and you have them teach you and you practice a lot. It wasn't uncommon for rabbis to teach their students to pray. John the Baptist taught his followers to pray and now the disciples are asking Jesus to teach them. Like a newly married couple, they don't always know how to communicate. But as they spend time together, they get closer to each other, they learn. Prayer is a skill that is developed over a time. In saying that, there's no real right or wrong way to pray, providing that the motive is right and it matches God's will. Prayer doesn't have to be complicated. Prayer doesn't have to be fancy. Prayer is that time we set aside to be with our Heavenly Father. Our structure perhaps should be similar to the model the Lord has given us where first petition relates to God and the following relate to us. An example that was passed on to me when I first came to this church and many here will probably know, is using the acronym ACTS. Starting with A, adoration, where we adore 
and give thanks to God for who he is and what he has done. C is for confession, knowing our position that we are indebted to him, but grateful for his forgiveness. T, thanksgiving for sending his son to die for us on the cross, making himself known to us. And supplication, the appeal or request, humbly for God to intervene favourably, ensuring that it is his will. And finally, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus put his father's kingdom first and that's what we should be doing. This is being more like Christ. Let me pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, the one true and holy God, we thank you for who you are and for your great deeds. You alone are the most high and almighty. You alone are worthy of all wisdom, power and glory. To you we confess our shortcomings and give you thanks for your forgiveness, brought about by the sacrifice of your son Jesus, who suffered on the cross for our sins. We trust that we will come, will continue to seek your kingdom and righteousness as we wait for the glorious return of our Saviour and Lord, Jesus Christ. And in his name we ask this. Amen.